we begin with the lighting of the first candle, which in Advent one is a candle called hope. Because hope is how this entire Christian calendar starts. Not simply, and I like the word, I like the phrase that Josiah used that we get so often wrapped up in waiting for his return that we don't celebrate enough that he has come and what that residence means in us. Well, this season does have us looking forward, but it celebrates the, the awaiting of the Jesus that came. And what they were experiencing in waiting for him. And then what does that mean for us? Because we have him. And yet we carry with us the same heavy burdens they carried. What does the Jesus that we have do to those heavy burdens? And so we enter this day of hope. And I want to begin with hope today. Because hope is not only where the calendar starts. It's not only where Advent starts. But in my opinion... It's where our lives in Christ start because we got confronted with our lives. We got confronted with our sin, our darkness, our death. I I might've just described one of the ways that you came to Christ. Or if you haven't fully committed to Christ or you're on that journey to committing to Christ, because I think we're all in different spots down that road, then what brings us to that is is a recognition of, our darkness, our lostness. Uh, I don't know where I'm going and I don't know how to get there. And the, the very thing that happens first is hope. Hope that this isn't it. Hope that I don't have to be swallowed by this. Hope that darkness isn't my definition. And when you met that, your darkness with that hope, you found Jesus. Jesus was the, the, in, the injection of the Father's love into your darkness. And that's just a repeat of the creation story that God hovers over the darkness in Genesis 1, speaks into it, and brings life. Here comes life. Life explodes. And that's the word of God speaking into our darkness. And so we inject hope today and begin with hope because this is a season of waiting, a new calendar, set on the short days of the year because the days are dark and long and we're anticipating a spring. We're anticipating, even in the secular calendar, we're anticipating a new year. This is a season of anticipation, but it's built around anticipating the arrival of Jesus. And the reason the Advent candles exist is because we're lighting a little bit of, we're putting a little bit of light into a very dark place, just a little bit of light into a very dark place. And then the next week, a little more light, we get closer to Jesus. And then a little more light, we get closer to Jesus until his light begins to be the antidote to all of our darknesses. And so we begin with hope. And I want to go to Isaiah 9, and I want to read today from a conventional Advent passage and an unconventional Advent passage. Because as much as I am trying to connect in this season of my life to the church at large, the body of Christ across the earth and and across time, um, I do have some unconventionalness to me that I can't shake. There's pieces of me that are like, you gotta, you wanna say this and this. And I think that's the uniqueness of our call. That's all of us bringing ourselves into this, knowing that he called us for that time and place. And I believe I'm called to be at the garden. 
And I believe that we were, we're called to have this encounter together and we walk this together. And if that be the case, there's going to be some unconventional moments inside of conventional moments. Cause that to me, that's life, right? Like you got life planned out and then there's a curveball. So we'll give you some conventional advent and some unconventional. Let's begin in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you've broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For Every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah, by many scholars, has often been called the fifth gospel. Now, I know he's not a gospel, but he's called the fifth gospel because no other prophetic voice speaks more of the Jesus you find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John than does Isaiah. There's glimpses of the Jesus of the gospels in other prophecies, but no one masters in the Messiah like Isaiah does. A voice of hope in the midst of a world gone crazy in Isaiah's day. A world in which Israel and Judah are bowing the knee to idolatry, being taken into captivity. All hell has broken loose in Isaiah's world. And incredibly, his book opens by pointing out that hell. He's mad about it. He's like a lot of preachers. We see something going on and we just get all fired up. And not long into Isaiah's letter, he has a vision of God. High and lifted up, his train fills the temple. And Isaiah, an angel, takes a hot coal off of the altar and touches Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah had opened his book, and I encourage you to read his great letter. But he opens his book with a lot of woes. Woe to the world. Woe to Israel. Woe to Judah. He's mad. Everybody's going to hell. And when the angel touches Isaiah's lips, he says, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He has a revelation that what he's been doing is woeing everybody to death. But once he sees God high and lifted up, the only person he can judge is Isaiah. Because that's what happens when you meet Jesus. The only person you can judge is you. You don't have the capacity anymore to look at her and him and him and her and go, look what's wrong with her. Look what's wrong with him. Look what's wrong with them. Because the moment you meet Jesus, you just say, wow. Look what's wrong with me. But look what's right with Jesus. And look what's right with what can be right in me because of Jesus. And so Isaiah changes his tone. After he has his revelation, he breathes the oxygen of the prophetic. And he goes, 
it's going to get better. He's coming. This whole thing's going to rest on him. And look, at this is just a little slice. Isaiah is the book, man, at Advent season. You get a lot of Isaiah because he's, he's the voice of the waiter. He's the voice of the anticipation. He's going, it's coming. I know it's bad now, but it's going to get better. And here's why. And you and I are looking back on Jesus, now able to see Jesus in these prophecies. And so an Isaiah who is reformed now, who has seen the love of God, now can't help but anticipate the light that's coming into the darkness. I just want to show you a few of them that we just read, but sometimes that's what, that's what we do in exegetical teaching is you read the, and then you go back and say, pay attention to this, don't miss it. So let me give you three from this passage that I would say, pay attention, don't miss it, okay? And that is, verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They dwelled in the land of the shadow of death. Remember what we said earlier about we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? And so here's a people in the valley of the shadow of death who have had great light. So the prophetic voice says there is hope that in the midst of your darkness, there will be great light. Hope number one, in the midst of your darkness, there will be great light. That the Father who loves you will not abandon you in the midst of your darkest hour. It is not a promise that everything turns out well. It is not a promise that we get all of the answers we're looking for. Or that we get exactly what we think should happen. It's a promise that we're never alone. That He steps into our grief, our pain, and our suffering. That He gives us a way out of it. By putting his light into our dark valley. By saying there's hope for tomorrow. It isn't always going to be this way. I'm never leaving you. I'm never forsaking you. You can live in the valley of the shadow of death, but I'll live there with you. But we're actually going through it because of the light that penetrates the darkness. John grabs this so beautifully in the gospel of John by describing in the beginning was the word. And the word is with God. The word was God. And then he says the word is light. And that light is the life of men. Because John sees the Genesis account of God hovering over the darkness and speaking. So John reimagines it and makes Jesus hover over this earth and speak his life into all of our dark areas. And so there's hope that if I'm going through the darkness, it doesn't have to be this way. There's hope in verse 5. Every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. What's the hope? The hope is that we turn our swords into plowshares. The hope is that the warrior doesn't have to put his garments and go to war anymore. The hope is that we put away the violence of retribution and wrath and war and anger. The hope is that we can be the people of a new kingdom who do not resort to the same weapons as the kingdoms of this world, who our first thought is not who can we make punish, who can we make pay for what's just happened. I find it incredible in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah prophesies of a day when the people of God will have their swords turn, they will turn their swords to plowshares. They, hear this, they will turn their swords to plowshares. Not God will turn their swords to plowshares. They'll do it. Did you know in the first 300 years of Christian history, the most quoted verse of all Christian writing, I find this fascinating. This is the kind of stuff that intrigues me. 300 years of Christian writing post-Jesus. The number one passage that's written 
by those authors for 300 years is they shall turn their swords to plowshares. That's the verse they grabbed. Why? There's a lot of verses in the Bible. Why did they grab that one? Because they thought they were those people. They took the responsibility that if we're really living in the kingdom of hope, the kingdom of God, then we're living in an era where we're supposed to take serious this idea that swords aren't the way forward, but that plowshares means this earth is something we're supposed to take care of, not something we're supposed to destroy. That we're a people not of war, but of gardening. (laughs) We're a people not of retribution, but of growth. And the church of the first several centuries took that so serious that they didn't think there was coming a day when God would turn their swords into plowshares. They thought they were living in a day when they should take serious the idea that we should ever be turning our swords into plowshares. I think when we lost that and switched it to, boy, someday, because here's how it was my whole life, boy, someday Jesus is coming back and he's going to turn those swords into plowshares. We put it off on him that it was his job and his responsibility. But this isn't how the early church saw it for centuries. And I think maybe we need to return to that idea. There's a hope, but we're a part of that hope. Not simply that Jesus will do it, but that we get to be involved in doing it. And that we're a part of the hope of what it takes in this world. If I didn't think we were a part of the hope, then what's the point? Like, what's the point of getting up here and talking about having hope if it's just about, well, someday Jesus is going to do all this. Someday, let's all just go live our lives. Someday, Jesus is going to show up and take care of all of this stuff. doesn't really matter what we do because someday, someday. And hope has never just been about someday. Hope for the people of God has always been about reaching out and grabbing His hand and saying, walk this with me and show me how to do this. I'm a hopeful person because I know there's more. I know that there's more you can do. I know that there's more that you want to do. And then one more. Verse 6 Famous verse, right? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's a nativity verse. That's a Christmas verse. But look at what it does. The government will be on his shoulder. Verse 7, the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and his kingdom, he'll order it. He'll establish it with justice and judgment. So we have hope that the government of Christ will reign and will rule and is expanding from the time Christ came. So I don't look forward to a day when the kingdom of God comes and replaces the kingdoms of this earth as if it's not already here. I look forward to a time when the people of God realize they're already first allegiance to a kingdom that is from heaven. They already have that kingdom and it's time to start living like it. So all of those are just in that passage. That's that's just some of our hope. That's just a slice of our hope. It's not our entire hope. It's some of our hope, but we're not Jews either. We're not... We're not just anticipating a Jesus to come. We're more than that. I want to broaden our definition just a little bit. This is, this is me throwing in my Advent two cents. All right. Zechariah chapter nine. Because I want to show you one of my favorite prophets. If you've watched or listened to my stuff, you know I'm a, I like Zechariah. Zechariah, for my money, is the most underrated messianic prophet of the Old Testament. Isaiah is the popular one. Zechariah is the less popular one. Zechariah is the band that you like that no one else knows about, but you think is better than all the other bands. 
okay? <laughs> and you're like, oh, no one knows this band. Everybody thinks that band's good, but if they ever heard, to me, that's my Zechariah. I go, they just don't know how good he is. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sounds pretty hopeful to me, right? Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and having salvation. He's lowly and he rides on a donkey. And I know you're thinking, oh, wait, wait, wait. This sounds like an Easter sermon, not an Advent sermon. Stay with me. Lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off. He'll speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Did you notice we've been told to shout our lights here? We've also been told he's going to cut off the battle bow. Those warrior clothes aren't going to get used anymore. And his dominion, his kingdom. This is the same thing Isaiah said. He's just seeing it deeper into the life of Jesus. He's seeing it at ride the donkey. He's seeing it at Easter. It's Isaiah's messianic hope fulfilled in a crucified Christ. What does that make you and I? Verse 11. As for you also... Because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. Now I want to I shelve restore double, okay? Put it on the shelf, and if I don't get to it, remind me. Don't let me say amen without saying, hey, pastor, what about double? Okay, we'll come back to that, because I can get lost from time to time. I know I appear to have it all together. But I want you to catch verse 12, your prisoners of hope. Isaiah is, or Isaiah, Zechariah is writing to uh, Jewish refugees in the 5th century BC. And instead of calling them prisoners of an enemy, he calls them prisoners of hope. He spins their prisoner motif. This is what prophecy does. It looks at where you are and spends it. And you go, well, I'm in the dumps. And prophecy goes, oh, yes, but you're not alone. Oh, I'm, a, I'm low. Oh, yes, but all that means is you got a long way you can go up. That's, that's, the, that's the hopeful prophetic voice. Oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, it ain't as bad as it could be. Amen? I was hoping I didn't have to explain how bad it could be. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we, I know we probably need a refresher on how good it is, but man, it can, all, it can be so bad. But the prophetic voice doesn't just look into the darkness, it speaks into the darkness, that which causes it to rise. It's the, it's the yeast in the meal that causes a whole loaf to rise. It's Zechariah then saying, yes, you're refugees, yes, you're prisoners, but what kind of prisoners are you really? Prisoners of hope, you can't help yourself. No matter how bad it gets, you keep hoping. What kind of a prisoner are you? Prisoners of hope that no matter if you're in a waterless place, you know that you have water of life inside of you, that the outside doesn't determine what the inside is, that no matter what goes on out here, it doesn't make any difference to who you are in here. You're a prisoner of that kind of hope. You can't help yourself. Things around you fall apart, but you're a prisoner of hope. You can't help but believe that he's going to deliver you. You can't help but believe that he loves you. You can't help but believe that he has died for you, that he's resurrected, that there will be a better tomorrow. God, give us this kind of hope again in the church. Give us this kind of voice where we say, I can't help myself, I'm hopeful. 
I'm a prisoner of hope because I have a great big God who loves me and a Jesus who has shined his light into the darkness. I can't help but be hopeful. It might look helpless. It might look hopeless, but we're bound by hope. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And so what we have received in him, and that's another prophetic voice from the Old Testament to say, God plans on hope in me. It's the, it's the prophetic word of heaven is hope within his people. To me, the saddest thing that can happen is to come into the house of God, whether it's this or a cathedral or a living room or three people at a coffee house talking about Jesus. Those are all houses of God as far as I'm concerned. The saddest thing is to enter that and all you hear is darkness. Depression, discouragement, arguments about world events, politics, economies. What's wrong with people? Sin. This is supposed to be, if nothing else, the last bastion of hope on planet Earth. The place that if you expect, you'll hear everything else everywhere else. That you walk into the thin space where the people of God gather and you breathe deeply the oxygen of hope. That things can be better, they will be better, not because we're positive-minded, but because of Jesus. Because Christ has come and Christ has died on my behalf and resurrected. And there's hope. There was hope in a dark world that He will come but there's hope in a dark world now that he has come and that if he has come, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever and he cannot abandon those that he loves. And so just like last week we talked about he will come again, that coming again is not simply and maybe not even entirely visibly a return in the clouds. But as far as I'm concerned, he comes again over and over and over in my own experience. I was talking to Larry before the service and said, I can look back at moments in my journey and say there were very definable revolutions. A revolt against where I had been, a revelation of who he is, and a renaissance of a new Paul. Those triple R's. I've had them, but I've got some big ones. I got a lot of little ones, but I got some big ones. You know, I, I, I remember the area of my life 15, 16, 17 years ago when grace, the love of God, and the finished work totally reformed me. A revelation of God loves me and the work is finished and quit agonizing over whether you're still saved or not. That was a big hurdle because I'd spent my whole Christian life trying to stay saved. Once I got past the stay saved hurdle and you knew you were in him, then you could live. But then you realize you hadn't lived yet. I'm 30 plus years old and hadn't lived one day in my life because I've lived all of those days up till that just trying to stay saved. Well, then when you get freed and you're resurrected, you go nuts a little bit. And I had some going nuts a little bit time because you don't know what you're doing and you're just like a little, you're just all jumpy and excited to get to breathe this air and jump as high as you can. <laughs> and I had to go through that. And so this is, why, this is why he's developed patience in me with people on the journey. Because I can look at people on the journey and go, oh, I know where that is. And I meet some people on the journey and go, I don't, I don't know where that is. And maybe it's because they're so far out ahead of me. <laughs> I'm learning that too. Is to go, quit judging where they are. Maybe they're just, you, you can't even recognize that. I don't know. 
But I've had all those little moments, those little revelations and revolutions and renaissances of my own spirit. And, and one of those has happened in the last several years. I got freed from the need to be right. That was a big one. I didn't even realize how big it was till it happened. And it happened over time. The need to be right, to have it all figured out, that's, that's pretty big. And, and being freed from that has let me breathe the oxygen of heaven that goes, it's okay to not know. Just, it's okay to say I don't know when someone asks you a question. Just say I don't know. You don't have to give some answer because you're the man of God. You've got to have it all figured out any more than any of us. And what that's done, those revelations, revolts, renaissances in me have done nothing but create hope. They create hope that I am not at the end of the run. They create hope that there's more to this. They create hope. And you know what it's done? It's made me a prisoner of hope. I can't help but hope now. I just, I, I've come too far. I just can't help but hope. I've seen him be too good to me. I've seen him in moments when I didn't think we were going to make it and he just intervened and we miraculously made it. And I don't know how we made it. And I even look back now and go, what in the world? There's no reason we should have made it. And he goes, you're a prisoner of hope. This is your life. You're bound by hope. You can't help but hope. He's too good of a God for anything else. Hope is defined as the confident expectation of good. And so when you hope, you are confidently expecting, please hear this, because I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball. You are not confidently hoping that everything will go good. That's hope that's going to leave you disappointed. And the hope in Christ doesn't disappoint. You're confidently hoping that he is good. You're confidently expecting that he is good. And you're confident that he's good. That even if things don't go well, he's good. And it keeps you from the trap of only assigning God is good to moments that are good. And we're all guilty of it. Things go well, we go, boy, God's good, isn't he? And no one ever has something go bad and go, boy, God's good, isn't he? Even though in reality, he's no less good when things go wrong than he was when things go right. He's still good. Hope is not, I believe in a God that makes things go my way. Hope is I believe in a God who is good no matter what. Who loves me in spite of my circumstances. Who walks through hell with me. If I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, he's there. And that hope makes me a prisoner. You know why I keep doing this? Because I'm just bound by hope. I'm, I'm, I've just become a prisoner of the, of the hope that God is a good God. I, I confidently expect that he is good and will be good in me and to me. Now let's go New Testament because we're a New Testament people. All right. And we're not simply taking Advent up to screaming baby Jesus in a manger. <laughs> we're going to get there. We, we'll get to screaming baby Jesus in a manger and, and it's glorious. But we're doing more than that in that we're living from a resurrected Christ. So go to Ephesians. I want to give you a couple of Paul. We'll quote some Peter as well. I'm tempted to give you a lot of scripture. I won't do that. There's enough already. And to keep from slowing down too much in it, let's get right to work in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Man, amen to that. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of His calling. (laughs) What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to to the working of his mighty power. If you didn't catch it, look at the near the end or middle of verse 18. I want you to know what is the hope of his calling. Because in Christ, we are called and that drips with hope. So Paul prays for the Ephesian church. He says, I want you to know the hope of his calling. This isn't the hope of his coming. This isn't the hope of his baby Jesus in the manger. This isn't even the hope of his coming back. This is the hope of who you are. This is, this is New Testament prisoners of hope. I pray you realize that your call is wrapped in hope. It's bound in hope. You've been brought to Christ full of hope. That every moment of your life is a hopeful existence. Not hoping things get better, but hoping for the Jesus who has brought His kingdom into the world. So that you can then face your adversities with not simply, Father, fix it. Because how many of you realize prayer can quickly turn into fix it time? See, I, I, try to, I try to have a prayer time every day where it's just silence, just me and him. And in that prayer time, I try to incorporate word, prayers that are written, prayers that are spontaneous, a little bit of a lot of stuff to try and do that push out maneuver. And one of the great challenges, even for me in knowing what I'm going to pray, is in that spontaneous prayer time where it's just me, because that needs to happen, where you just go, okay. I'm not going to read anybody's prayer. I'm not going to read a psalm. This is just, let's talk to God. I find myself slipping into fix-it mode a lot. Can you fix this? Can you fix that? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you, is there any way you could? And it's not that God is up there going, oh, Paul, come on. No, I don't, I don't think so. I, he's the loving father and he's patient. Thank God he's patient. Or he'd have been done with me a long time ago. Probably you too. <laughs> But, but, but it's more than fix it. Because I'm hope, I've been called into hope that even if it isn't fixed, what do I want? Give me a revelation of who you are in this. I just, if I could just have a revelation of who you are in this, fixing it's the last thing. Fixing stuff is the last thing I'm called into. I'm called into the hope of who you are. And if that's the space we cultivate as the people of God... We're patient with people being fixed. Because <laughs> see, you're all being fixed right now, whether you know it or not. I- I'm being fixed. We're just letting the Holy Spirit do it. Even sitting in this service this morning, you're being molded a little bit by the Spirit. Now you can resist it, and you will. We will. We'll, we'll push. But you're being molded a little bit. He's doing the fixing. But he's so, he's so meticulous that... Sometimes a professional, sometimes you can tell how professional people are by how little they move. And the, and the amateur is all over the place trying to fix everything at the same time. And the professional knows exactly what to fix, like precision strikes by a professional, you know? And you're going, gosh, they're not even doing much. You know, it's like the guy that I, I heard the illustration of the guy that comes into the house to fix the water heater or whatever. And person goes well thanks man and he goes there's your bill a hundred dollars and the guy goes gosh you weren't here 45 seconds how's it a hundred dollars and he said well it's 
$1 for my labor, but $99 for knowing where to put my labor. I mean, it didn't matter that it took me one minute. You didn't have my, you didn't have my knowledge of where. It's kind of like $1 to swing the hammer, $99 to know where to swing the hammer. And that's, that's professional versus amateur. That's knowing what you're doing. That to me sometimes happens in prayer because I'm like, fix it, fix it. <laughs> Just like wild throwing all this stuff up before the Lord. And then in a revelation of his love for me and, his, and his, who he is, it, I can just let him precision strike his goodness into my soul. As I say, now I get it. I've been called into hope. That's who I am. One more, Romans 5. You're begging for one more? Okay, I'll give you one more. I could sense it. You're going, we need just one more scripture and I'll believe this, Pastor. I'm going, okay, well, I'll do that. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Famous passage when we talk about righteousness and justification because Paul's the, the master at that in his Romans letter. But look at Romans 5, 1 and 2 through the lens of hope. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Aren't you glad for that? And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I love that phrase because, and this requires a little more attention than we have time for, so I'll just be brief and say when Moses asked to see God's glory in the Old Testament, God let him, but he said, I'll make my goodness pass before you, which forever changes our definition of glory because according to God, his glory is his goodness, okay? So whenever Paul says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, we're rejoicing in hope of the goodness of God. So I rejoice today because I believe I have a good father. So I can face all my situations and go, you know why I have hope? Because I have a good God. I'm called into it. I'm a prisoner of it. I have a good father. Because I have a good father, he has me. I'll quote this one for you. You won't have to turn. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. I like that. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're living, walking, and talking hope. Okay, remember double? Okay. He'll restore double. Unfortunately, what has happened is that sometimes we have, through our desire for things money, possessions. We've shifted the message of the gospel in some circles, and we've all done it in some ways, into a little bit of God really wants you to be rich. God really wants you to have a bunch of stuff. Because if you have a bunch of stuff and you're rich, then it shows the world you serve a good God. And I think that's a perversion of the gospel. Because it doesn't show the world He's a good God if you have money. Why is that showing he's a good God? There's nothing wrong with having money. Well, it doesn't show the... When we, when we substitute the good news of the king has come with, if you do this, God will give you money. He'll give you houses. He'll give you lands. He'll give you stuff. Then we pervert the proclamation of the king has come. Okay? So what you don't, you're not going to come into the garden and have this pastor stand in front of you and say, if you would live right with God and do the right thing, God will make you really rich. And, you'll, and, and, and oh, by the way, if you'll give a bunch of money, he'll really make you rich. You don't buy God. You're a prisoner of hope, not a prisoner of performance. And if you jump through enough hoops, God will bless you. No. So what's restored double? I said all of that because we've perverted verses like that. And we've said, listen, 
The day is going to come when God's going to give you double your money, double your houses, double your stuff, double your possessions. The New Living Translation said, I will repay two blessings for each one of your troubles. Ooh, there we go. There we go. I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. I'm a God who does not keep tight books when it comes to how you act, he says. We know this because he doesn't count our transgressions against us. 2 Corinthians 5. Remember, we don't serve a bookkeeper God. But I am a God who keeps track of what happens to you. And I got your back. You hear that? So I'm not keeping books on what you're doing, but I'm keeping tight books on what happens to you. That's why we're hopeful people. So God says, through Isaiah, I'm going to pay them back for whatever trouble they go through. Now, God didn't say that's going to be checks and money and houses and cars and stuff. I don't tell God how to pay back. We don't know. God, he's so much higher than us. In that regard, we would cheapen it by asking for it our way. So I don't know what it looks like, but I know I have sensed more than once in my life he's done it. Like, boy, I went through this. And then later you go, look at all this. You go, that was God putting double for your trouble. There's a good prayer for you this week. Lord, give me double for my trouble. If you, need a, <laughs> you need a new, if you need a fix it prayer, there's a good fix it prayer. God, give me double for my trouble. I don't, you know my trouble more than I know my trouble. And you know the double more than I can know the double. And I receive it. And I receive it in Jesus' name. We begin with hope because we are people of hope. But we don't end. We just keep going with hope. We're called to hope. We're prisoners of hope. We're living hope. We rejoice in hope. These are all New Testament phrases of hope. We have a candle lit in the darkness that says there's a little bit of hope. You and I are looking back on that light, realizing that someday in Christ, that sun came up in its fullness. And that even now the rays of the resurrected Jesus are penetrating the darkness of the world. Our call as the people of God is to continue to shine the light into the darknesses that people bring into this place. Shine the light of his love, of his grace, of his goodness. He's a good father. Let's receive that together, would you? Bow your heads with me. Just, just receive that word. If it's a word that speaks to your heart, and I pray that it is, I think that it is. Just receive it as a word of hope. For whatever area of your life today that you know you need some hope, okay? You can inject the hope of his goodness. Father, I thank you today for the garden. Even more important than this place, and I love it, even more important than this place are the people of the garden, the plants that are putting their roots into the soil of your love. And for them, I'm so grateful. Father, I pray that what we've done today is give them a taste of the hope of Jesus. Because they're going to walk out of this garden space and they're going to go back into the world and the world is a dark place. And there, there's darkness. There's no doubt about it. There's darkness. But they're prisoners of hope. They rejoice in hope. They are living in hope. What they see around them is not the end game. They're a hopeful people. And that, Father, if we can have a revelation of hope, we can realize that all we're ever really doing is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We're not actually walking through death. You've already walked through death. We're just walking through its shadow. And that we have hope in the midst of that shadow. 
that shadows are simply what happens when the light hits an object. So, Father, we have hope that the light has already begun to shine. As Malachi said, the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Let the sun shine on us today. Father, as we begin Advent season, a little bit of light in the midst of a darkened world. May we go out and be a little bit of light in the midst of a darkened world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.